And thank you all for being with us here today. We are in part three of a message series called The Truth About Church. And in this series, we're talking about, you guessed it, church. And we are a church that talks a lot about being a church because we, Christian people, we so often forget what we're supposed to be about as a church. We so often lose sight of what we're supposed to focus on and what should our priorities be. And we just get lost in the shuffle and the busyness of life. And sometimes, even in the busyness of Christian culture, we can lose sight of what it is that we are supposed to be as a church and what we are supposed to do as a church. And so the goal in this message series is for us as one local church to get better, to get better at being a local church. We started off our series with a message called The Perfect Church. Some of you were here for that a couple weeks ago, The Perfect Church. And in that message series, we discussed the fact that there is no such thing as the perfect church. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one key reason is that we, the people who make up a local church, we fail to abide by the instructions given to us in Scripture. And we took a look at our favorite verse, Hebrews 13, 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. There's our favorite word, submit. We talked about the fact that it's such a challenge to submit, to be willing to follow someone, and it's such a burden to lead. But where there is trust, that's the key ingredient, where there is trust, there is a willingness to follow. And so it's our job, those of us who are leaders in the church, it's our job to earn and maintain the trust of the people that we serve, the people that we lead. Last week we talked about opposition. Whenever you set out to do something good, especially in the name of Jesus, you will face opposition. It is a fact. It's unavoidable. And I shared with you last week my personal story of the opposition that I've faced as a, a church planner of a pastor of a church for the past 10 years. And 100% of that opposition has come from within the Christian community, which really isn't all that surprising. When you consider what we, what we see in Scripture, what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in the New Testament, so often it is the people of God who end up tearing down one another from the inside. God sends the people a teacher, a prophet, a leader, somebody, and that person is often criticized and opposed and torn down by their own people. It's what they did to Jesus. What does it say in John chapter 1? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so we, those of us who are Christians, the people of God, we have this ugly tendency to tear down our own we got to stop doing that, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, I'm convinced that the biggest enemy to the church is found within the church. And so many of us Christians, but here's how it works in America. We just develop this understanding of church based on our experience and our preference. And then we create these expectations for what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be a church. And these expectations, they're not based on the Bible. They're based on our experience and our preference. But if we take a step back and if we develop a concept of church based on the Bible... <laughs> What we'll realize is that within God's boundaries, within God's clarifications of what church is supposed to be, within those boundaries, there is a lot of freedom. And so let's, as one church, let's develop our sense of church based on Scripture. And when we do that, we're less inclined to criticize and oppose and tear down. Let's support one another and work toward that goal, goal of unity. Today's message is called The Vision. In the past couple of weeks, I've made reference to the fact that in part three of this series, we'll talk through Hope Community Church's specific vision, the specific work that we've been called and created to do right here in our community. Uh, last week, I mentioned to you that uh, I have been in vocational ministry for 20 years, and that time period really divides evenly into two parts, 
10 years before hope, 10 years with hope. And when I think about the 10 years prior to launching hope, prior to starting this church, there were many milestone moments along the way in those first 10 years. Experiences I had, people I met, books I read that helped shape my understanding of what it means to be a Christian, shaped my understanding of what it means to be a pastor, shaped my understanding of what it means to be a local church. There were some books I had to read in Bible college, uh, like um, Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie. I'm reading this book, and I'm thinking, this doesn't feel basic at all. It feels pretty advanced, but it was a great book. It's something I had to read for school, lots of books like that. And so you're reading stuff like this. I'm reading uh, Crazy Love by Francis Chan, Next Generation Leader by Andy Stanley, Radical by David Platts, uh, Reason for God by Tim Keller, and all these books are opening my eyes and giving me these little mini epiphanies about what it means to really follow Jesus. There are people I met over those 10 years who ended up becoming my mentors, and without their leadership and without their guiding and without their mentoring, there would not be a Hope Community Church. And so you have these milestone moments along the way. The biggest milestone in those first 10 years, the biggest epiphany that I had, it took place in a church in Westchester, in a darkened room among a group of pastors, and we were there watching a video teaching series by a missiologist named Dwight Smith. Do you know what a missiologist is? Yeah, pretty sure he made it up. Someone who is dedicated to studying and living out the mission of God. And so we're watching this series together, and I was invited to, to be a part of this group, and I reluctantly accepted that invitation because, I mean, I had work to do, and like this felt like a distraction from my work, and plus it was, you know, I'd have to hang out with these pastors, and pastors are, are weird, usually, right? And so I didn't want to say yes to this invitation, but I said yes begrudgingly, and so I'm there, and we're watching this content in this dark room with other pastors, and Dwight Smith, he tells the story in this series. He tells the story of how he was serving as a senior pastor of a very uh, successful church. Uh, by successful meaning that there were plenty of people in the pews, and the people were happy, and the music was rocking, and there was money in the offering plate. And on Sunday mornings, they just had all these Christians nodding along to a wonderful message, and so a successful church, right? And they got to the end of their budget year. And they were looking over their finances, looking over their spending, and they realized that they did not spend any money out of their evangelism category, okay? And so this senior pastor, he pumped the brakes, said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Something, something's wrong. And a question arose in this pastor's heart. And that question led him to taking on a whole new approach to his ministry. And when I first heard this question, I had no idea that seeking the answer to this question would lead to the greatest epiphany I've experienced in my faith. And that's not an exaggeration. Seeking the answer to this question led to the greatest epiphany I've experienced in my faith. And seeking the answer to this question reframed not only my approach to pastoring, but my approach to living out my Christianity. And seeking the answer to this question reshaped my approach to, to living out my faith, and it shaped my understanding of what church is supposed to be. Over the past 10 years, I have tried to share that epiphany with others with varying degrees of success and failure because I wish I could. I wish I could recreate this experience 
for you. The experience of wrestling with this question and seeking the answer, but one thing I've realized over the past 10 years is that I cannot manufacture an epiphany for anybody else. That's just not how it works. All I can do is give you this question and encourage you to sincerely seek the answer in the pages of Scripture. And the question is simple. You guys ready for it? <laughs> question is, what does God want? What does God want? It's simple, but it's important because ideally we, the people of God, we, the people that make up the church, we should be focused on the task of giving God what he wants. And I believe the only reason the church exists is to give God what he wants. We can't give God what he wants if we don't know what he wants. Fortunately, we can know what God wants because God has revealed his greatest desire to us in Scripture. And there's a lot of different ways to think about what the Bible is. Some people view it as like, well, this is history and it's like instructions for how to live and all this. And, and, and those things are there, sure. But more than anything else, I believe that the Bible is God's revelation. He's revealing himself to us. He's showing us what he values, what he's passionate about, how he wants us to live. It's all there. The heart of God is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Now, you can go through the Bible, and you can comb through Old Testament and New, comb through every verse word by word, and you can come up with a list of all the things that God wants. In fact, I would encourage you to do that. Some of you are in that habit of Bible reading on a daily basis, which is a wonderful discipline. Next time you, you pick up your Bible, just go through with that question in mind. Okay, what does this passage tell me about what God desires? If you go through your Bible like that, you'll discover a list. Here's a list of things that God wants. One thing you'll realize as you go through that process is that one thing stands alone as God's greatest desire. There's one thing that rises to the surface above all the things, all the other things that God wants. God's greatest desire rises to the surface. So let me ask you that question more specifically. What does God want more than anything else? I mean, I get a whiteboard and we can just raise our hand and we can write down all the things that God wants. We could do that. Maybe we should do that someday. That'd be great. But let's get more specific. What does God want more than anything else? Do you realize that God has passion, right? We were made in God's image. You know you're passionate about things. You desire something. We get that from God. Do you think of God in that way? As being passionate, really, really wanting and pursuing something? That's God. So what is it God wants more than anything else? Let's find out. Let's take a look at that scripture passage that's in your bulletin. It's Luke 15. This chapter is sometimes called the lost chapter because it tells stories that deal with lost people. We'll see what that term means as we go on. And so let's take a look at this. We'll set the stage. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now tax collectors, all right, and those days they were reviled and hated. I mean, they're not like our favorite people now, but back in those days, entirely different story, all right? So specifically, we're talking about Jewish people 
children of Israel who were forsaking their own people to work for the Roman government to take money from their own and give it to Rome, okay? And give it to the enemy. And so they were the lowest of the low. You had tax collectors and sinners. Who were the sinners? Well, specifically in the Gospels, when you see that term sinners, we're referring to a group of people, the Jews, again, Israelites, who had given up on God. They stopped following the, the, the sacrificial system. They stopped observing the holidays that God had given them. They, they weren't following the commandments of Moses. They just gave up on this whole God stuff. So again, Jews by their ethnicity, but they had given up on their own God. And so here's Jesus, and his audience is made up of tax collectors and sinners. You know, people who weren't living righteously. And they were hearing what he had to say. Verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Uh, Don't you love muttering? Uh, They muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, again, what do we see from last week? Opposition, where is it coming from? From within the, the believing community, within the people of God. I mean, these are the people that were supposed to know the Scripture, supposed to know the law and the prophets well. And they see Jesus mingling with sinners, and they've got a problem with that. And so in response to this muttering, Jesus tells a series of parables. And so let's just imagine this audience. You've got the holier-than-thou, if I can use that term. You've got the religious establishment, and you have sinners. So he's got a very mixed audience that he's attempting to address here. Here's what he says. And Jesus told them, verse 3, this parable. Suppose... One of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Take a moment here. Because the way that this question is phrased, it seems like Jesus is begging a certain answer from his audience, right? He wants them to say, "Uh, yeah, yes, Jesus, that's what we do. But think about this practically. Any shepherds here today? No, one? Not? Okay. Think about this practically. If you were a shepherd and you had 100 sheep and just one gets lost, just one, would you go and and leave the 99 in in open country, in open wilderness to go and pursue the one that's lost? I mean, come on, that's not very practical. I don't want to risk the 99 while I'm off there trying to find the one that's lost. But the way Jesus phrases this question is like, wouldn't you go do that? Wouldn't you go do that? And if anybody was honest, they would have said, Not so much, Jesus, right? But the good shepherd does leave the 99 that are safe, the 99 that are saved, and goes after the one that is lost. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus creates this this comparison, creates this understanding of these two different people groups, the saved or the righteous and the lost. So Jesus tells the story about the shepherd wasn't, won't he leave the 99 and go after the one that's lost? Verse 5, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says to them, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need. To repent.
think it was sometime in, in year three of Hope Community Church, I met with one of my mentors, and he asked me the question, what if it was just for one? What if all the work and all the struggling starting a church, what if it's just to reach one person? Give the gospel to one person. Would it be worth it? The answer is yes, absolutely. Absolutely, because there's great rejoicing in heaven when someone goes from being lost then receives the gospel, understands what Christ has done for them, and then gets saved, right? Luke 15 continues, goes on to what is perhaps my favorite passage in the Bible, the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. And there is God as the father in this story. He has a son that leaves his home, that leaves his house, that says, I just want your money, and I'm going to leave, and I'm going to live life my own way. I'm not going to live under your house. I'm not going to live under your roof. I'm not going to live by your rules. He goes out, and he squanders his gift, squanders his inheritance on wild living. And when he's down in the dirt, his lowest point, he comes to his senses and says, my father takes care of his servants. I just got to go back. I got to go back to my father, and there's the father who represents God, and when he sees his son a long way off, what does he do? He runs to the son to restore and embrace, and he says to the son, you were as good as dead, but now you are alive. You were lost, but now you are found. What does God want more than anything else? Let me read for you. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Peter is writing to some Christians who are very eager to see Christ return. I mean, Jesus said he's coming back. What's going on? He said he's coming back soon. When, when is this going to happen? I mean, they were struggling in life. They were suffering through persecution, and they just wanted to be relieved from that. That was their priority. They were waiting for Jesus to return. They weren't thinking about all the other people around the world who had not yet heard the gospel. They were just thinking about themselves. And so Peter writes to them, and he says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know, there's some issues we take in the Scripture and we can't really figure out, oh, it's kind of vague. Well, Scripture really doesn't address this specifically, so we have to kind of build an understanding based on some. No, no, no. When it comes to this issue, what does God want? We don't have to try to piece some mystery together. It is overt. It is clear. It is explicit. Passages that straight up tell us, here's what God wants. First Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. This is Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, who's becoming a pastor. Therefore, I exert I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires... I mean, right there. He's about to tell us. Well, what does God desire? Who desires all men as in all of humankind, who desires all men to be saved. That is the greatest desire of our God, is to see us receive salvation in Jesus Christ. What does God want? 
more than anything else. More than just an assembly of saved people gathering together and singing songs to him and listening to sermons. What does God want more than that? More than anything else. He wants to save the lost. That's what God wants. That's the number one priority. Yeah, you can come up with a list, but the number one priority is to save. Save the lost. I believe that the only reason the church exists is to save the lost. Let me say that again. I believe that the only reason the church exists is to save the lost. Now, I did some rough math this past week, and it uh, turns out I have preached this sermon about 20 times in 10 years, right, or a variation of it. And I tell you this, the only reason the church exists is to save the lost. And here's what I've noticed over the past 10 years. There are basically three responses I get when I say that. The only reason the church exists is to save the lost. Three responses I get to that. The first response I get is some people disagree. No, it's not. That's not the only reason the church exists. Some people disagree. But sometimes that disagreement is actually just an illusion. For an example, someone would say to me, you know, Josh, I disagree. I don't think the only reason the church exists is to save the lost because if you look at what Jesus says, he tells us to go into this world and make disciples, doesn't he? So really, isn't our purpose to go and make disciples? And I would say, yes, absolutely. To what end? Why are we making disciples? To save the lost. The process of making disciples is sharing the gospel, but not just sharing the gospel. Someone receives salvation. Someone accepts what Christ has done for them, what Christ has done for all of us. That he died on the cross in our place. That he suffered for our sins. That he rose again on the third day and they're placing their trust in Jesus for salvation. They take that message. But then beyond that, Jesus tells us that we need to instruct those people, instruct those people who find salvation, instruct them in all the ways of the Lord, teaching them to obey everything that Christ commanded Go and make disciples, is what Jesus said. Why? Save the lost. And so that the lost who become saved and then go save more lost, right? Okay, it goes like that. The only reason the church exists is to save the lost. So like I said, some people disagree with that. But sometimes that disagreement isn't real. It's just an illusion. When you have a conversation with somebody, you realize, oh, we're actually we're saying the same thing. We're just going about it different ways. Some people say, you know, Josh, I disagree that that's the only reason the church exists because... I read this book by Rick Warren, and he says there are five purposes of the church, and that's fantastic. And so I'm going to go with what Rick Warren says over what you say, Josh, right? And who could fault somebody for that? And there is a fantastic book by Rick Warren called The Purpose Driven Church, which I highly recommend you read. And so he lays out these different purposes, and it's worship, it's community, it's discipleship, it's evangelism, and I'm forgetting one. But he gives five purposes of the church. And what I just say to that is, yes, there's all kinds of wonderful things that we do as a church, but it's all working towards one goal, right? All these things that we do as a church, building community. How often do we talk about building community? All summer long, we're talking about building community. Yeah, that's important. Building community, serving, loving one another, reading your Bible, all these things. Yes, but it's all working towards one goal, one goal. If you take those five purposes and you hold them all equal, well, if you're missing the one, if you're missing evangelism, well, we've still got four going. Oh, you're missing the most important one, right? So we could do lots of things as a church, but it's all working toward one goal. 
And so like I said, when I say the only reason the church exists is to save the lost, some people disagree. Sometimes that disagreement is artificial. Once we have a conversation, we realize we actually agree about that. But sometimes that disagreement is real. A person really does disagree. I don't believe that's the only reason the church exists. They really do disagree. So let me just speak to you if that's you, if you disagree. I want to lay out some options for you. You've got two, okay? Option one is you can change your mind. You can take that question of what does God want more than anything else, you could take it to the scripture for yourself and be open to having your mind changed and see that the only reason the church exists is to save the lost. So that's option one is change your mind. Option two, can you guess, is change your church, right? (laughs) Because we believe that the only reason the church exists is to save the lost. And if you disagree with that, listen, go find a, a church that agrees with what you think the church should be about, right? Just spare yourself the anxiety and the discontentment of being a part of a church that doesn't align with what you want the church to be, right? You're not obligated to be here, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you disagree with that and you really seriously disagree, either change your mind or change your church. Yeah. All right. So over the past 10 years, do you like that? (laughs) Over the past 10 years, three responses I get when I say the only reason the church exists is to save the lost. The second the second response is I get, the second response I get is that people agree in theory. They agree in theory. Yes, I hear you, Pastor, and the only reason the church exists is to save the lost. And I know we do these, we serve and we learn the Bible and we help each other and we do all this stuff, but it's all working towards that one goal. And I absolutely agree, Pastor. That's what we should be about in theory. In theory. Right up until we have to put that into practice. This is so many of us Christians. Oh, we love being a part of a church that talks about the lost, that talks about how we should be focused on sharing salvation with others. But then the rubber meets the road. But then we find ourselves in a church where, oh my goodness, there's people showing up to worship and they're not living right. People showing up to worship who are far from God, people showing up to our events in small groups, and it's like, these people aren't even Christians. They're out there. People coming in who are addicted to drugs, which we have had. People coming in who are actually inebriated on a Sunday morning, which has happened. You go up during that welcome and greet time, and you shake somebody's hand, you're like, whoa, what's going on? You can smell it, right? These are things that have happened here. So there's so many Christians that are okay with this in theory. Yes, let's be a church that's dedicated to the lost, but do you realize how messy that is? When it gets messy, we start to back away. We back away from that. That's the second response I get, is to agree in theory, but not in practice. Sometimes a Christian will agree this is what the church should be about, but then they realize that that requires sacrifice on their part. Well, if I'm going to be a member of a church that's dedicated to reaching the lost, then I'm not going to get to really experience the things that I want the church to be about. Well, there's your sacrifice. You're sacrificing what you want for other people. I had a conversation with uh, Corey Brown recently. He was in seminary now, and and as a matter of fact, we had professors tell us the exact same thing about church, (laughs) that church is not a club. Do you know this? Church is not a club for Christians, but if church were a club... It would be the only club that exists for the sake of its non-members. Isn't that wild? Right? 
We exist for the sake of the people who aren't already believers. Yes? At my last church, we had a, a VBS, Vacation Bible School. Anybody know what VBS is? Anybody? Yeah? We could start like a club afterwards, VBS. You know, share our VBS stories. It was fun. I liked VBS. Anyway, our last church, I didn't like running it. I liked participating as a kid. But our last church, we had VBS, and it was a popular thing, and uh, the, the classrooms would fill up fast. We only had so many rooms. We only had so many teachers, and so it was like, register fast if you want to go to VBS. And so that date had come and gone, and there was a member of our church who really wanted her son to be in the pre-K class. That's the class that filled up the fastest. Like, oh, sorry, you missed the registration date, and so we really can't get your son in. He said, well, listen, I'm a member of this church. Can't you find a way to get me in? And I said, well, listen, if we're going to extend some kind of preferential treatment, shouldn't it be towards people who aren't already members? Imagine how well that went over. <laughs> now, she was not a big fan of me after that conversation, right? But that's the thing. It's not, it's not for us. This isn't a club, but if it were a club, it would be a club that exists not for us. There's a sacrifice there. There was a church once upon a time, not too long ago. And this is a true story, by the way. It was a church, and uh, they were... We're doing okay as a church. They had two services. They had a, a contemporary service, and they had a traditional service. And um, they brought in a ministry consulting team. Did you know that's even a thing, right? They hired a ministry consulting team to see how they can improve on reaching new people. And so that consulting team came in, and they gave their analysis, and they sat down, and here's this consulting team meeting with the leaders of the church. And they said, here's one recommendation. Here's one thing you can do. You can flip around your service times because here you are and you're doing the, the service at um, this contemporary service, the more modern service, you're doing that at 9 o'clock, and then you're doing the traditional one at 11. Just flip those two things around. If you just do that, you'll be more likely to reach new people because statistically, new people are more likely to come to a later service, right? Just a matter of fact. You know what they said? No. I've been a member of this church my whole life. I've been going to a tra traditional service my whole life, and it's always started at 11. No. Okay. Sacrifice. Just come, come to church two hours earlier. Sacrifice. And the hope that you'd make the gospel more readily available to someone who's new. And so again, when I say the only reason the church exists is to save the lost. There are plenty of us Christians who would agree with that in theory until we realize how messy it is, until we realize how much that we are required to sacrifice to make it a reality. You know, I mentioned that whole idea of a whiteboard and you can list all these things that God wants and you can come up with, listen, number one is easy, but if you try to break it down, okay, well, here's the second most important thing to God, here's the third, then it gets messy, all right? You can come up with a list of things. But here's the issue for some of us Christians is that we want to take something that maybe belongs in the second place and make it number one, right? Because there are things that matter to God more than just the one thing. Yes, 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 he wants other things. Sure, sure. But we can't let anything else take that number one spot. So here's something else I've observed over the past 10 years. The top two competitors for the number one spot. Top two competitors. One is helping people. Goodness gracious, as a church, we need to help people serve them, meet the needs that we're able to meet. Isn't that the truth? We need to do this. And some people want to take helping other people or serving other people or loving other people, however you want to think of it, and they want to make that number one. So, well, you need 
You can't do number one without helping people. You need to help people. You need to serve, but we can't let that become number one. Because the thing that's number one is the salvation of the lost. I mean, there's so many things that we could do to help people. We can collect food and give it to families in our own community who are in need. We can collect clothing and and send it on a, a shipping container over to Ukraine so the people there can be clothed. We can travel to Kenya and give people clean water who are dying from a lack of clean water. We can meet a whole lot of needs right here and now. But eventually, all those needs that we meet, all those people that we help, they're all going to die one day. And so, yes, helping people is important, but not, it's, not, it's not number one. Number one is salvation. Think of it from a father's perspective. Think of it from a lost sheep story perspective. If you were a parent and you had, okay, let's say four kids, not 100. If you had four kids and three of them know Jesus as their Savior and one does not, well, what's the priority? You love all your children equally, but you're going to prioritize sharing the gospel with the one who is lost. Yes, helping people, meeting their immediate needs is extremely important. And I think that over the years, we've demonstrated that as a church, right? That is important to us. But we can't take that and put it in that number one spot. And so the top two competitors for the number one spot, one is helping people. The other is teaching people the Bible. We got to put that in the number one spot. Goodness gracious. Learning the Bible, studying the Bible, Teaching the Bible to other people has been so important to me and in my life. And not that this is a competition, but I'm pretty sure I've spent more time and more money reading and studying this book than most of the people in this room right now, right? I believe in how important this is. Because you can't, you can't share the gospel with the lost if you don't know your Bible. You need to know the Bible. It is so absolutely important. Last week we talked all about we need to have our idea of church shaped on what the Bible says. So yes, it is important, but it's not number one. Just keep in mind that the people who nailed Jesus to the cross, the Jews who had him put there on the cross, they knew the Bible. At least they thought they did. And so you need to study the Bible. You need to help people. You need to help other people learn the Bible. You need to do those things, but all for the sake of saving loss. You can't let anything else take that number one spot. And so again, over the years, there are Christians that agree with me in theory, but then they realize, oh yeah, listen, but I really want helping to be number one. Oh, no, 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 we can't make that number one. But they really want learning the Bible to be number one. It's like, no, 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 that can't be number one either. So we end up dissatisfied. Yes? You see what I'm saying? You can't let anything else take that number one spot. You need to help need to learn the Bible, but you can't let anything else take that number one spot. All right. And then the third response I get when I say that the only reason the church exists is to save the lost, the third response I get is to agree in practice, to be willing to sacrifice. Sacrifice our wants in order to make the gospel more readily available to the lost. Take a look at the front of your bulletin, if you would. There's a little line at the top of the page just under our logo. And most Sundays when you walk in, I don't know if you even notice this, most Sundays it just says engaging in the mission of God. Well, that is the front half of our vision statement as a church. But this morning we printed the whole thing. It says engaging in the mission of God for the sake 
of the lost. This is who we are as a church. We're engaging in the mission of God. We believe that God is on a mission, and it is a rescue mission. It is a salvation mission. We believe in the God of Scripture and that he's on a mission, and we have been called and created to also engage in God's mission. But it's not just for our own sake so we can have Christian club time. No, it's for the sake of the lost. Let me get more specific about this. We are here in the Ridley Interborough area, okay? There are about 60,000 people who live in this area. We exist for the sake of the lost among those 60,000, right? Now, we're not excluding people that live outside of those boundaries. We're just taking responsibility for the people who live within those boundaries. See what I'm saying? We're not excluding. We're just taking responsibility, so we can make our vision more specific, thinking about the 60,000 right here in our immediate area. But here's what I want you to do today. I want you to make this vision statement more specific to you. Yes, we're here for the 60,000 people in our area, the 60,000 people who are lost and don't yet know Jesus as their Savior. But let's make this more specific. We exist as a church for your lost loved ones. It is for their sake that we exist now, I mentioned this very early on in this series, um, the simple idea behind, behind Hope Community Church is to let's be a church for people who aren't already Christians, because there's plenty of churches around, and a Christian person can connect with any of those churches, but let's be a church for people who aren't already Christians. That's who we are. That's who we need to be. And so we exist for the sake of your lost loved ones who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior. Here's what I'd like you to do today. Take a moment right here and now. And don't, don't be afraid to care because so often that's the thing that holds us back as Christians. We just get scared about caring about other people. Don't be afraid to care. And think about the people in your life that you love the most who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior. It's a scary thing to do. It's something that emotionally we might want to avoid, but I'm asking you, to allow God to break your heart for the people in your life that you love the most that don't yet know Jesus as their Savior. Is there a name that's coming to mind? Maybe two, maybe three, maybe more names. Who is it? I'm going to pause here. Who is it that you love? Don't do that thing where you try to shake this off. Well, I'm not, you know, they're probably saved. And I don't, no, 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 no. Really go there. Let yourself go there. Don't be afraid to care. Who is it? Is there one name that bubbles to the surface? Write that name down. There are index cards in your pews. You can write on that index card. You can write it on your bulletin. Do what you have to do. I'm, I'm challenging you. If there's someone in your life Write that name down. Someone who does not yet know Jesus as their Savior, write that name down. And then take that, whether it's an index card or a bulletin, take that and put it somewhere on your refrigerator, on your mirror, somewhere, where you will see that name and you will pray for that person. And you'll remember that the reason Hope Community Church exists is for the sake of that name, for the sake of that person. One of the most difficult things for us to do as Christians is to face reality. 
the reality that not everybody we know is saved. Who's that person in your life? You want some more awkward church moments? I'll give them to you. I got plenty of them to share, right? Let's park there. Who is it? Who is it? Write that name down. Write that name down. We exist for the sake of your lost loved ones. Thank you. Keep that in mind when you show up to worship on a Sunday morning, okay? This church isn't for you as Christians. It's for your lost loved ones. That's why we exist. We are here for the people who don't do not yet know Jesus as their Savior. Keep in mind that parable of the lost sheep. There is great rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. We exist for the sake of the one that is lost. Let's pray on that. Father God, we have written down some names this morning. There are people we love, people we care about, who do not yet know you as Savior. And those of us who are Christians, there are things that that we want to be about as Christians. There are things that we want to do as Christians. Father God, I I just ask you to align our hearts with your heart. Break our hearts as your heart breaks for the sake of the lost. Father God, allow us to live into this calling, to become a church, to become a people, to become an opportunity for the lost to hear and experience your gospel. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.